0: Welcome to our Sunday morning service. I'm glad that you're able to join us. Just a couple of things for me to mention before we start. After this service, starting at at 12 o'clock, there will be uh, coffee time online. We started this last week, and I think for most of you, the feedback was that it went very well. I know some of you had difficulties, but if it didn't work for you last week, I'd encourage you to persevere, try again and uh, enjoy that time meeting up with other people from the church just from 12 until half past 12. And then we are continuing during the lockdown with our evening services. So at six o'clock this evening, we'll be continuing to look at Matthew's gospel. And I hope that you can join us for that service online as well. With a Bible reading, it's a reading that shows us the folly of going our own way in life. We can see how foolish that is when we begin to sense the hugeness of God's greatness. The reading is Psalm 36, if you're able to turn there in a Bible, and Lydia is going to read that for us now.
1: Psalm 36. I have a message from God in my heart. "'Concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. "'There is no fear of God before their eyes. "'In their own eyes they flatter themselves, "'too much to detect or hate their sin. "'The words of their mouth are wicked and deceitful. "'They fail to act wisely or do good. "'Even on their beds they plot evil. "'They commit themselves to a sinful course "'and do not reject what is wrong. "'Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, "'your faithfulness to the skies. "'Your righteousness is like the highest mountains.' Your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast in the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Continue your love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. See how the evildoer's life fallen, thrown down, not able to rise.
0: When we grasp that God is the fountain of life, then we stop looking for life in other places. When we taste God's unfailing love, then we will not be satisfied with any other love. Our next song reminds us when we have God himself, we have an anchor that will always hold. Let's join in singing, We Have an Anchor.
2: unfold their wings of strife when the strong tides lift and the cables stretch Hands shielded by his grace on Christ, we. Stand. Is our confidence
3: that our anchor? Holds. We have an
2: anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the bees.
0: our church members, Isabel Streicher, is going to be moving away. And unfortunately, we don't have the opportunity to say goodbye to her in person here as a church. But on Friday, I spoke to Isabel about her move and how we can be praying for her. And we're going to hear that short interview played for us now.
3: Hi, Isabel.
4: Hello, Tim.
0: Thanks for uh, agreeing to be interviewed. I know you don't like to be at the front, but maybe this is better than being at the front of church, is it? Okay, so I had a few questions for you. I did have a look back and you've been a member of the church for nearly four years and part of the church for longer than that. So I imagine that most people know you. Uh, Some people know you quite well, but maybe just for Uh, those who don't know you, or uh, for all of us uh, who may not know, how long have you actually been in the UK and then what made you decide to go back to Germany?
4: Um, I came to the UK in 2009, um, almost 12 years ago, Um, and I've never been sure um, how long I would stay here. it has been a very long and difficult decision, but um, I decided to go back because one of the main reasons is that I wanted to be closer to my family.
0: And so uh, where will you be going in Germany and what's your work situation going to be? Will you be close to your family?
4: Yes, um, I go to the west of Germany um, the nearest uh, city is Stuttgart, um, and my family lives um, in that area as well. Um, and I have got work uh, that I'm going to start beginning of January.
0: And uh, do you know or have you, you find a, a good local church that you'll be able to be a part of when you get there?
4: Um, I haven't yet um and i think it might be a bit difficult to find one but there are plenty of churches um, that i can go to
3: yeah
0: okay and i know you've got a lot still to organize in terms of getting ready to move so how can we be praying for you maybe in the short term but then also longer term what can we pray for you
4: um, Finding a good church, um, for good family relationships, um, and um, settling back to Germany.
0: And uh, when are you actually making the move?
4: Um, on Monday.
0: Okay. Do we just manage to catch you in time? Yes. Okay, well thanks for uh, making the time to chat briefly and we will be praying for you and it'd be lovely if you're able to stay in touch, maybe let us know how you're settling in and we can share that information with the church just for their prayers once you've arrived in Germany.
4: Yeah, I'd like to.
0: Okay. Thanks, Isabel. We will uh, miss you, but we will definitely be praying that you find a good church family uh, in your new place.
3: Thank you.
0: Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we have read this morning about your love that reaches to the heavens and your faithfulness that reaches to the skies. And so we can pray with confidence. Continue your love to those who know you. We can pray that with confidence because of Jesus. When our life is anchored in him, we know that your love will never fail us. And we pray particularly for Isabel this morning as she makes this move back to Germany. We pray that she will have confidence and assurance that your love to her continues. We ask for your help as she settles into a situation that will be familiar in some ways, but also what will be a significant change in other ways. We ask you to help her in her family relationships. Help Isabel to be a living testimony to her family of your goodness. And we especially pray that Isabel will find a church Not just a church, but a family of believers who love Jesus and who love one another. We pray that she will find friends who will walk with her as she follows Jesus. And we pray too for one another. Help each of us to find our refuge and our satisfaction in you. Help us to keep our eyes on you all the time. Bring your word to us clearly. And as we listen to you, help us to see things clearly. Amen. Our next song is a prayer that our vision would be filled with God Himself. Let's join in singing, Be Thou My Vision. Does it really matter how we worship God? Surely he's pleased with us as long as we worship him some way. Does it really matter how we look for peace in life? Surely as long as we're aiming for fulfillment and pursuing it, that's positive and good, isn't it? We may have asked ourselves those kind of questions, or we might never have thought about them before. But they're questions we ought to think about, and our passage this morning will help us to do that. We've come now to the final section of the book of Judges. Chapters 17 to 21 are noticeably different from what we've seen up to this point. Since chapter 3, we've been hearing about a series of judges who led Israel. There were 12 of them, and some of them were given just the barest of mentions, only a few sentences. Others were given several chapters to themselves. But with the death of Samson in chapter 16, the focus on the judges is now over. Chapters 17 to 21 focus on the lives of ordinary Israelites. And something else is different too. We saw the judges dealing with Israel's enemies, external threats to Israel's existence and peace. The focus of the judges was mainly on delivering Israel from those enemies from outside, the Moabites, the Midianites, the Ammonites, and most recently the Philistines, who Samson tangled with for 20 years. But now in this final section of the book, the focus is no longer on enemies from outside. It's on ordinary life in Israel. How do ordinary people think? How do they live? What do they live for? So with that in mind, we're going to look this morning at chapters 17 and 18. If you have a Bible, it would be helpful to turn there and we'll read both of these chapters. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make an idol, and it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah who had been living within the clan of Judah left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Eshterol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the Danites. They told them, go, explore the land. So they entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for him and said, He has hired me, and I am his priest. Then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, Go in peace your journey has the Lord's approval. So the five men left and came to Laish, where they saw that the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, at peace and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. When they returned to Zora and Esh to all their fellow Danites, asked them, how did you find things? They answered, come on, let's attack them. We've seen the land and it is very good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go there and take it over. When you get there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands. A land that lacks nothing whatever. Then 600 men of the Danites, armed for battle, set out from Zorah and Eshtaal. On their way, they set up camp near Kiriath-Jarim in Judah. That is why the place west of Kiriath-Jarim is called Mahane-Dan to this day. From there, they went on to the hill country of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their fellow Danites, Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, some household gods, and an image overlaid with silver? Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites armed for battle stood at the entrance of the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, while the priest and the six hundred armed men stood at the entrance of the gate. When the five men went into Micah's house and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They answered him, Be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest, rather than just one man's household? The priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol, and went along with the people. Putting their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them, they turned away and left. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you called out your man to fight? He replied, You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask, What's the matter with you? The Danites answered, Don't argue with us, or some of the men may get angry and attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest, and went on to Laish against a people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rehob. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan, after their ancestor Dan, who was born to Israel, though the city used to be called Laish. There, the Danites set up for themselves the idol. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made. All the time, the house of God was in Shiloh. This is God's word. We introduce chapter seventeen to twenty-one by saying they focus on ordinary life in Israel. And having now read chapters seventeen and eighteen, our reaction is probably, "What a mess!" This is What a Mess, Part 1, because it gets worse in the next chapters. But we'll worry about that next week. This mess is enough for us to get on with now. As we read this passage, I would guess most of us had a hard time making sense of it. People are saying strange things, and they're behaving in strange ways. And the things they say don't seem to match up with the things that they do. Welcome to ordinary life in Israel during the time of the Judges. But before we give up hope of making sense of this, we need to notice one statement that gives us the key to solving this puzzle. It's actually the key to the whole of chapters 17 to 21. It appears several times in these chapters, and the first time is here in chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Literally, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The writer of Judges wants us to read these chapters and understand this is what life is like when everybody does what is right in their own eyes. This is not unusual. It is typical of how things go when everyone decides for themselves what's right and wrong, rather than doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. That is how life on earth is supposed to be. Men and women were created to live under God's good authority. His word was to direct their lives, and that's how it was in the only paradise there has ever been on this earth, the Garden of Eden. And that is how it will be in God's new heaven and earth. And that is our only pathway to a truly peaceful, just and prosperous society in the meantime, in between Eden and the new heaven and earth. But, says the writer of Judges, let me show you how things go when a society stops caring what is right in the eyes of the Lord and lives according to what is right in their own eyes. Why in this verse does the writer also mention the lack of a king in Israel? Well, it's not because any old king will solve the problem. The rest of Israel's history proves the wrong kind of king is no help at all. And Israel ends up having a string of those. So it's not a case that any old king will fix it. But the rest of the Old Testament promises a particular king who will himself do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And he will lead his people to do the same. In other words, according to the Bible, the way out of this mess and the general mess of the human race is through a specific king who is completely devoted to God's will and leads according to God's will. But at this point in history, that faithful king is a long, long way off. And what we find is everybody is making up the rules as they go along. Everyone is deciding for themselves what's good and bad in life. And here is the mess that comes from that. Chapters 17 and 18 show two aspects of the mess. First, the mess with regard to pleasing the Lord. And second, the mess with regard to finding peace. First, in chapter 17, how not to please the Lord. Worship him in your own way. In chapter 17, verse 1, we're introduced to a man called Micah. He has a great name. His name means who is like the Lord. And it turns out Micah and his mother are quite interested in the Lord. They want the Lord to be good to them. And they are keen to worship the Lord. But they do it in their own way. And it's all a mess. In verse 2 we learn that Micah's family are very wealthy. Micah's mother has had 1,100 shekels of silver stolen from her. Back in chapter 16, the Philistine leaders offered Delilah 1,100 shekels each if she would betray Samson. And we said at the time that combined amount equated to millions in today's money. And when Micah's mom had the cash stolen from her, she put a curse on whoever stole it. Apparently, it wasn't just a few angry swear words. She said something more intentional to try and bring trouble on the person who'd taken her money. And when her son Micah heard her curse, it freaked him out because he was the one who'd taken the money. And he's so worried about the curse that he confesses. His mother then panics Because as rubbish a son as Micah obviously is, she doesn't want the curse to land on him. So she tries to cancel the curse by calling down the Lord's blessing on her son. And to show the Lord how serious she is, she promises she will use the 1,100 shekels to do a wonderful thing for the Lord. Something he will just love She will make a really high-end idol, an image overlaid with silver. Surely nothing will delight the Lord more than someone making an image and worshipping it in his name. Now maybe somewhere in the back of this lady's mind, she had a vague recollection that the Lord had given a list of Ten Commandments. And maybe somewhere in that vague recollection, she re- remembered that idols were given a mention in the Ten Commandments. And maybe she had a faint idea that it was not a positive mention. But never mind. This is a properly expensive idol she's just promised the Lord. And she may be thinking, times have changed since the Ten Commandments. They came out ages ago. The Lord is probably up to date now with what people like and enjoy. And he'll like it too, won't he? Surely by now, the Lord will have accepted that idols really are the thing. And he'll be happy to see one with his name on it. But then, having made this wonderful commitment to the Lord... Wonderful as she sees it anyway. After making the commitment, Micah's mom begins to think that, well, 1,100 shekels really is quite a bit of money. And she did have other plans for that money. And probably her curse wasn't that likely to land on Micah anyway. So she keeps 900 of the silver shekels. And she gives 200 to the silversmith, who makes a slightly less grand idol. And it turns out Micah himself is quite into worship. Yes, he's a thief. He's willing to steal from his own mother. But verse 5 says he has a shrine. Literally, a house of God. And in his house of God, Micah has an ephod and some household gods. To go with his new silver idol. Household gods were miniature idols. They were little trinkets that were thought to bring good luck. So Micah is well set up. He has his own little worship center. And things are just about to get a whole lot better as Micah sees it. Because verse 7 says a young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah who had been living within the clan of Judah left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. And Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food." So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. Why is this Levite such a bonus? It's because the Levites were the priestly tribe in Israel. So now Micah has an official priest for his worship center. His sons don't have to fill in anymore. In verse 10, be my father means something like be my spiritual director. But in reality, this young man is probably the same age as Micah's kids. And verse 11 says, the young Levite became like one of his sons to him. So we can be pretty sure who the real authority is in this setup. It's Micah. But surely the Lord will be good to Micah because he has a professional priest to oversee his idol, his ephod, whatever that was, and his household gods. Micah doesn't care that there's only one true house of God. At this point in time, that is at a place called Shiloh, where the Ark of God's Covenant is. Nor does Micah care that his new priest can't be very committed to the Lord, since he's wandering around the country willing to forsake his duties at Shiloh and do his priestly stuff at any shrine, so long as the pay is good. None of that matters to Micah because he's worshiping the Lord, isn't he? It's in his own way, of course, which happens to clash with what the Lord himself has said about worship, but surely the Lord isn't gonna be picky. Surely the Lord will take what he's given and be thankful for it, and bless Micah for his effort. Well, no, actually, that is not how it works. It does not please the Lord when we worship Him according to what is right in our own eyes. Today, it does not please the Lord when we have a leader like Steve Chalk, who claims to be a Christian, but who is lobbying the government. ...to make it illegal for churches to uphold the Bible's teaching on sex. Steve Chalk and others think that God's word about sex, marriage and relationships is out of date. Meaning it is not right in Steve Chalk's eyes. So we ought to ditch God's word and worship him in a different way... ...by affirming sexual choices that the Bible does not affirm. And celebrating those sexual choices in church, in the presence of God. And churches who refuse to do that should be prosecuted. That is what Steve Chalk is saying. He and his friends would fit right in with Micah and his private house of God. But it's very easy to point out the folly of others. What about us? Do we, for example, ever try to make bargains with God, like Micah and his mother did? I'll give away this much, Lord, if you'll just get me out of this fix I'm in. Or if you'll just get my family member out of the pickle they're in. Or, if you'll ignore this sin that I'm committed to, Lord, and that I refuse to give up, if you'll ignore it, I'll do this service for you to compensate for my pet sin. Or, what about where we get our ideas about God from? Do we ever get our ideas about God from somewhere other than the Bible? Do we check that the songs we sing about God are actually telling the truth about him? Do we check that the preachers we listen to or the spiritual books that we read are actually true to what the Bible teaches? There are multi-million dollar ministries out there with preachers who are followed by millions, but they're not telling the truth about God. They're telling lies in God's name, like God wants all of his children to be rich with the same kind of big house and big car that I have. Or God would never allow a faithful Christian to be sick. So if you are sick, you must have done something to make God angry. Actually, what makes God angry is that kind of false teaching being delivered in his name. You and I can be as religious as we like. We can be as fervent as we like about our religion. But we will never please the Lord so long as we're determined to worship him in our own way making up our own ideas about him, or swallowing ideas somebody else made up about him. True worship that pleases the Lord starts when we stop listening to ourselves and begin listening to him. And then worship him his way. And that means, first of all, bowing before his son Jesus as our king and saviour. Here in Judges, chapter 17 ends with Micah feeling pretty good about his way of worshipping the Lord. And chapter 18 introduces us to a whole tribe in Israel who are trying to do things their own way. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites were seeking a place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Esh to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the Danites. They told them, go, explore the land. So they entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. When we read in verse 1, and when we read that verse, we might think that Dan was not allocated any inheritance, that they had been forgotten about, or that they had been treated unfairly in Israel. But in fact, when the Israelites entered the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua, The tribe of Dan was allocated land along with all the other tribes. Joshua chapter 19 describes quite precisely where that land was, here. The trouble was in order to claim that inheritance, the Danites had to fight for it. They had to fulfill their mission as God's people. They would do that by bringing God's judgment on the Canaanites who were living there and driving them out. And chapter one of this book told us the Danites didn't have the stomach for that fight. The inheritance was there to be claimed, but they weren't willing to do it. Or more accurately, they made a half-hearted effort and then they gave up because it was hard work. So here in chapter 18, when verse 1 says the Danites had not yet come into an inheritance, it means they had not done the hard work of claiming the inheritance that was earmarked for them. What they've decided to do instead is to go searching for a different place, a place they can take easily. So they send out these five spies to go and explore the land. I wonder, does that ring any bells for you? Does it remind you of any other incident in biblical history? Well, generations before this, when Israel had escaped from slavery down in Egypt, the Israelites sent spies to explore the land of Canaan as a whole. Because Canaan was the promised land. It was a fruitful place. It was a place where Israel could find rest. It was there for the taking. It was the inheritance God had for them. And they sent out spies to explore it. That was generations before this. But what has happened is, the tribe of Dan, having found it difficult to claim the land God gave them, they're now searching for their own promised land. Their own place where they can find rest and flourish. It's another example of Israelites doing what is right in their own eyes. They believe they can find a better inheritance than the one God has for them. They can find peace and rest their own way. So here's the second aspect of the mess we're being shown in Israel. How not to find peace? Seek it in your own way. Seek the promised land that you have chosen, that looks good to you, and pursue that. Pin your hopes on finding rest and fulfillment that way, rather than the way God has set out for his people. These spies from Dan head north. They come to Micah's house. Remember, his family are wealthy, so their settlement was probably fairly big and hard to miss. The spies stop there for the night, and they take note of Micah's impressive worship center. They also bump into a friend of theirs, the young Levite priest. He comes from their direction, and apparently they know him. He sends them on their way after assuring them their journey has the Lord's approval. Although there's no indication the Levite actually consults the Lord, it's more likely he just thinks it's the right thing to say. The five Danite spies then trek all the way up here to a place called Laish. And chapter 18, verse seven says, So the five men left and came to Laish, where they saw that the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, at peace and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. There's some debate among commentators as to whether Laish was within the original borders of the promised land. It appears that way on our maps. But at best, it was on the very outer edge of the promised land. And more likely, it was just outside the outer edge. But as we've seen, the significant point is, this place was definitely not the territory promised to the Danites. However, it is very attractive. Historians confirm it was a well-watered place and the people there are not warlike. Secure here seems to mean that they feel secure. It doesn't mean the city is well-fortified. That does not seem to be the case. The people of Laish are also isolated and they like it that way. But that is attractive for the spies from Dan because it means Laish will be easy to take. Dan can overwhelm these unsuspecting people and nobody else is going to come to back them up. The people of Laish have no allies to turn to or call on. So this place becomes the new promised land for the Danites. Forget the place God had for them. That was too hard. This place will be easy to take. This is where the Danites will look for peace. This is where they hope to rest and prosper. This place is right in their eyes. So the spies go back to the rest of the tribe. They assure the tribe this is the place God has for them. Even though it's actually far away from the place God earmarked for them. And the tribe doesn't hesitate. 600 men set off with their families, their livestock and their possessions. Probably this is the first wave of the migration. The best warriors and their families are sent on ahead. They set off. And on the way, the five spies who are guiding the 600, they make sure that everybody calls in at Micah's place to steal the great worship equipment they'd seen earlier and to steal Micah's Levite. At first, the Levite is hesitant, but as soon as they offer him a bigger congregation and probably a raise in salary, the writer of Judges tells us he was very pleased. He packs up the worship equipment and he goes along with the Danites. It was right in his eyes to become an idol priest for Micah and now it's right in his eyes to steal from Micah and become an idol priest for the Danites. It's a better paying, more prestigious position. Why would he say no? He can find his own personal peace and prosperity among these people, he thinks. It seems Micah was not at home when this theft happened. But verse 22 tells us what happens when he gets home. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, that's the Danites, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? He replied, You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask, What's the matter with you? The Danites answered, Don't argue with us, or some of the men may get angry and attack you and you... Attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. That's how Micah's story ends. He discovers when we try to worship God our way, the little religion we make for ourselves will amount to nothing in the end. And we will be left with nothing. The things we clung to will melt away. And we will be without God and without hope forever. We are wise to listen to God's word and worship him his way. That's the way to eternal blessing. That's how Micah's story ended. In his own words, he was left with nothing. What about the Danites? How does it end for them? Well, they carry on to Laish. They attack the city. They burn it down. Then they rebuild it and settle there, renaming the place Dan. They believe this is their place of rest. This is where they will be at peace. But it doesn't turn out that way. Look down to verse 30. There the Danites set up for themselves the idol. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made. All the time the house of God was in Shiloh. The Danites follow Micah in worshipping according to what is right in their own eyes. And here at the very end, the writer of Judges gives us some information he has carefully been holding back until now. He tells us the young Levite is actually a descendant of Moses. It was through Moses God had delivered his word to Israel. Moses met with God on Mount Sinai and he carried God's law back to the people. But here is one of Moses' descendants leading Israelites in worship that is not pleasing to God because it seeks God's blessing while defying God's word. And this goes on for generations. The books of First and Second Kings tell us that the tribe of Dan is a notorious place of idol worship. It's constantly referred to throughout the history of those two books. Generations of people attempt to worship the Lord in the way that is right in their own eyes. But in the end, it all comes to nothing. Verse 30 reminds us, The day came when the land was lost. The Assyrians came and they took the people of Dan away into exile. The Danites thought they'd find their own little promised land. They thought what God had promised them was too hard. They would find peace and security their own way. But they ended up with nothing. No land and no peace. I wonder if we can make a similar mistake god's word tells us our only true security comes from trusting in jesus it tells us true rest and peace will come when we follow jesus all the way home to him and the bible is very honest until then until we are in his presence we will have trouble Living by faith in Jesus in obedience to God's word will often seem hard. And so it's easy to start looking for security and peace in other ways, in other places. If we had this, we'd be satisfied, we think. If only this would work out, we'd be secure, we could rest, at the moment. How many of us are staking our hope in a vaccine for coronavirus? Then we can stop being afraid because we'll be safe when the vaccine comes. Then we can find peace again because we can get back to normal. We've only been frustrated and irritable because of all the disruption we've had to live with in recent months, when the vaccine comes, it'll be great. Or maybe not. Because in reality, life will not suddenly become secure. There will still be dozens of things to be afraid of and to be insecure about hundreds of things if we really put our mind to it. And are we really going to become patient, cheerful, warm-hearted people when life goes back to normal? Were we all like that back in February before the virus hit? with or without a vaccine our only hope for peace and security is to trust in jesus every day and follow him every day listening to his word trusting his promises obeying his commands when this crisis is over there will always be something else to rock our boat, and to cast a shadow over our lives. We cannot live our lives saying endlessly, when this is over, it'll be okay. When this goes away, I'll not be afraid anymore. There will always be another crisis. Our only way to peace is not to try and wish all the crises away, The way to peace is to face each one with our hope in Jesus. He is our peace. He is our security. He is our anchor in every storm. Yes, our faith is weak. Yes, we naturally look for other things to put our hope in. But we have to trust God on this. We dare not trust what is right in our own eyes. There's no security and there's no peace that way. So as we close, let's recommit to trust in Jesus. We can do that together as we sing Cornerstone.